Well, as long as we're here at the Sacramento News and Review, we thought we ought to grab Kel Munger to come back and do some follow-up on our talk we had some months back about some untoward developments in Africa. So uh, welcome back to Radio Parallax, Kel Munger. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me back. Good news, bad news. What was going on over in Uganda and other places? Well, there's been a lot of response from the international community to the so-called Kill the Gays bill which was a bill in in, uh, Uganda that would attach penalties, including long-term imprisonment and the death penalty for uh, homosexuality. Now, they're claiming that this is for uh, particular things like sexual assault and pedophilia, but if you actually read the bill as it's written, um, if you're arrested more than once for homosexual uh, acts, then you can actually be sentenced to either life in prison or to death. Now, this caused quite a bit of outrage in the international community, obviously. And uh, our State Department put some diplomatic pressure to bear, as did uh, the United Kingdom, most of the European nations. Um, The president of Uganda has um, issued a a statement hoping that they will back off on this bill. He's not behind it. No, no. It's it's been put forward. It's a legislative effort. It's a legislative effort. Um, David Barati is the guy that's um, the actual mover and shaker behind this. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, and the reason this is of interest in, in America is because of all of the ties that the people supporting this bill have to American evangelicals. Um, some of them are involved with The Family, which uh, the the C Street group that's been um, described by Jeff Charlotte right. in his book, right, The Family. Right. In fact, he's got a new book coming out sometime later this month about their connections to what's going on in Uganda. And um, I recently read an interview with him where he said that he was told that if he tried to return to Uganda, he would be arrested as a promoter of homosexuality because he doesn't advocate killing the gays. I see. The current state is that the bill is still under consideration. It doesn't look like, at this point, it's going to pass in the near future, but there is a lot of agitation going on in Uganda, including um, religious revivals. There are some, um, some question as to how much support they're getting from the Anglican Church in Africa. For people who are really interested in information about this, probably the best American sources for what's going on is the work um, of Jeff Charlotte, which can usually be found at um, his, uh, one of the websites that covers him regularly is Killing the Buddha. Um, it's a, a sort of a religious watch website. And then the other um, website that has been really good and has connections with uh, Ugandan activists who report what's going on is Box Turtle Bulletin. But the truth of the matter is that things are really bad for gay people in Africa right now. And a good chunk of this can be laid at the feet of American evangelicals who've been kind of agitating behind the scenes to um, keep the homosexual agenda out of Africa, which basically means that they know they've lost here, and so they're going over there to um, you know, push this really violent agenda which basically says gay people either stay in the closet or risk death. Yeah, it's kind of an amazing idea. Well, I want you to come back, and I know I pulled you away from your desk. I promise it'll only be five minutes, and I don't want to to keep you away from your deadlines, but uh, come back and talk about some of these groups, the ones that came to Sacramento last weekend and such, because I think they bear some further scrutiny. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and you know, what's interesting about it is that, uh, and I'll be doing some work on this on my blog, uh, my SNNR blog, which is called Hot Flash, um, is that um, Newt Gingrich has now organized a Pray and Act 
political action committee that's working with an Ameri with the American a number of American evangelical and Catholic groups, and basically this they're they're putting this out as a religious renewal thing, but it in terms of what they're discussing, which is anti-abortion, anti-gay rights, anti-freedom of speech for anybody who's not Christian, in terms of what they're talking, it really is about getting the vote out for November. And when they mean get the vote out, they mean get out the far-right vote. All right, it's well, that, that settles it. Between now and November election, come back and we'll see how that's been progressing because I know there's going to be some nefarious activities. Thanks a lot. All right. speaking with Kel Munger, writer and blogger for the Sacramento News and Review. She'll be back too. All right, through the miracle of modern technology, we're now back in the studio. And I wanted to quote from one of our favorite bloggers, Mark Evanier whose site we recommend highly to you, News From Me. Commenting last week on President Obama's speech, he said the following. President Obama's speech this evening doesn't seem to have pleased anyone. Pro-Obama folks thought it was wishy-washy and unfocused. Anti-Obama folks didn't, don't like anything he does. He then cites Fred Kaplan, who sums up some of the things wrong with it. But said Mark, at least the Iraq war is over, sort of. Was anyone happy with that whole thing? Can anyone explain what we accomplished that was worth all those lives and resources? I mean, apart from stopping Saddam Hussein from using all those weapons of mass destruction? Some reporter with Nexus access ought to dig up all those jokes and comments that once dotted the press and internet about how weapons inspectors like Hans Blix had to be deaf, dumb, blind, and bribed not to have found solid evidence of them because even the stupidest person in the world knew that Saddam had them. Did you ever see anyone apologize to Mr. Blix and his fellow inspectors? I didn't. Earlier today on CNN, I saw two people, no one famous, saying that it was too soon to withdraw troops. One was some guy at a truck stop whose rhetoric was not unlike John McCain's. Someone once summarized McCain's Iraqi, Iraq strategy as, we stay until there's absolutely no reason for us to stay, and then we continue to stay. I thought that was pretty much an unfair exaggeration until I heard a McCain speech, and that's pretty much what he said. The other person was a very sad lady whose son died in Iraq. Her argument was that if we leave now, her son and all the other fallen soldiers will have died in vain. So, we owe it to them to stay, i.e., get more soldiers killed until we accomplish something, anything, that justifies her loss. Said Mark, that's a sad argument for any war. If some demented leader sent our troops to fight a war that everyone thought was pointless and unwinnable, you could still use that argument as a reason to keep it going. And someone would. To which I would add, Mark, <laughs> someone did in Vietnam, and someone is still going to do that now. Yes, you're right. It's unfortunately the duty of our men and women in uniform to do what they are told and fight where they are told, and they sometimes die in the process of doing that. One hopes if people make the ultimate sacrifice, it will be only for worthy causes. Unfortunately, the reality is that that is not always the case. And uh, in another story related to passing out of this world, apparently the mandate from the American Board of Anesthesiologists is 
They're going to revoke the certification of any member who participates in executing a prisoner by lethal injection. Though the AMA has long opposed doctor involvement in these executions, the anesthesiologist group is the first to say it will harshly penalize a healthcare worker for abetting lethal injections. It's a potential problem because nearly half of the 35 states performing executions, including Virginia and North Carolina, require a doctor to be present at all executions. Here to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, you don't need a doctor for that particular procedure. All you got to do is get it in the vein. Lethal injection stops your thinking, it stops your breathing, and it stops your heart beating. And that pretty much is the whole ball game. Death penalty supporters have said that nurses or emergency medical technicians are well-equipped to perform executions. Article by Rob Stein in the Washington Post a few months back noted that uh, Michael Rushford, president of the Criminal Justice Legal Foundation, which supports the death penalty, said, Some think it's an effective argument to say you need a doctor to do this. You don't. It's a counterfeit argument. All right, let's continue to follow up on something we mentioned a few months back, this theory that uh, mankind evolved because we learned how to cook. Getting a lot of traction, apparently. This theory, which was championed first by Richard Wrangham at Harvard University, has divided paleoanthropologists. But I understand there were some fistfights at a recent anthropology conference. Just kidding. But they did have a conference in Portland, Oregon, this summer, the Evolution 2010 conference. And, uh, well, people are presenting what they think is the best evidence yet that we are adapted to eating cooked food and, this, and that this is the result of events that occurred early in human evolution. Some other Harvard researchers predicted that if humans were uniquely adapted to eating cooked food, then we'd spend far less time chewing than other primates as cooked food tends to be softer than raw food. So to test this, they gathered data from various primate species and looked at the correlation between chewing time and body size, taking into account how the different species were related to one another. A primate species of our size should, in Harvard theory, spend 40% of the waking day chewing, yet on the average we chew for less than 10% of the day. Man, I'm pretty sure I chew for a lot less than 10% of the day. 10% of the day is 2.4 hours. Mr. McMillan suggests that this theory may be sponsored by Wrigley's. But to seriously, paleoanthropologists have looked at Homo erectus uh, jaws, note that the molars are considerably smaller than in earlier hominids. It's something no one's been able to explain. For Rangham, cooking is the obvious explanation. About 1.8 to 2 million years ago, he says, Homo erectus, or perhaps an immediate ancestor, acquired a taste for food that had accidentally fallen into a fire. These early humans then learned to use fire for cooking unwittingly, getting more nourishment as a result. This is because these cell walls in cooked food are already partially broken down. It needs less chewing and is easier to digest. The, uh, the key stumbling block for this theory, if you're keeping score, is that there's no convincing evidence that hominids could control fire more than a million years ago. The oldest direct evidence for fire at a site of human habitation only goes back 790,000 years to a uh, site in Israel. They're saying if Rangham's right about this, cooking hearths would have had to have been widespread about 1.5 to 2 million years ago. I bet if they keep looking, they're going to find some. But uh, we'll continue to keep you up to date on the breaking developments in this area. Speaking of food, we couldn't resist a section in the Week magazine a couple weeks ago called What the Great Ate. The article notes somewhat expectantly that Elvis Presley took eating to more absurd heights than anyone they could think of. He snacked constantly. Hostess cupcakes, Eskimo pies, Krispy Kreme donuts. 
When he ate a pie or cake, that didn't mean just one piece. He often ate the whole thing. He reportedly once flew more than 800 miles to eat a sandwich made from an entire loaf of Italian bread that had been hollowed out and stuffed with peanut butter, grape jelly, and a pound of bacon. Elvis Presley, dead at 42. I wonder why. Most probably his drug habits as much as his eating habits, but obviously his eating habits were not helping. Article notes that Thomas Jefferson may have been America's original foodie. He introduced eggplant to the U.S. He was planting and eating tomatoes at a time when many Americans feared they were poisonous. He also wrote the oldest surviving U.S. recipe for ice cream. Thomas Edison, it reports, once invited friends to a steak dinner. Instead of handing them steaks, served them cut-up pieces of leather that had been heated and bathed in gravy. After his guests tried in vain to carve their food, Edison admitted the prank and ordered the cook to bring in the real steaks. Great inventor, maybe not such a great comic. Here's a bit of food trivia. Apparently the Chinese philosopher Confucius wrote about peaches around 500 B.C., which is more than a century before the fruit was documented in any other part of the world. According to legend, Confucius was serving with Duke Ai of Lu when the Duke's servants presented the philosopher with millet and a peach. Confucius ate the millet and then enjoyed the peach. Apparently, the Duke's courtesans laughed and laughed at this breach of custom, eating the millet before the peach instead of afterwards. Huh, they thought that was ridiculous. And no, we don't understand it either. But here's my favorite item out of what the great ate. Apparently, the novelist Vladimir Nabokov, who wrote Lolita, had a passion for both writing and butterflies. He apparently was a first-class butterfly collector. They noted that his interest in butterflies went beyond the mere collection of them. Yes, uh, Nabokov apparently confided to a Sports Illustrated reporter once that he had eaten butterflies in Vermont. I didn't see any difference between the monarch butterfly and the viceroy, he said. They both tasted vile. Which is very interesting because we noted on this show a couple years ago that we're taught that, uh, that pests like to eat the monarch butterfly, but that the viceroy imitates it. Or is it the other way around? I think it's the monarch imitates the viceroy and that birds don't eat the viceroy. At any rate, <laughs> God bless Nabokov for testing the theory and finding out that they both taste pretty bad because that is also what researchers studying the eating habits of birds concluded. The birds didn't like either one. So that particular episode of mimicry apparently got shot down. All right, final item from the day, an obituary. We note the passing of Richard Scar Lopez, founding member of Cannibal and the Headhunters. They were not a prominent group. They only lasted a couple of years. In fact, it appears Mr. Lopez spent a lot more time in his career, uh, which did involve overcoming a drug problem, uh, being a landscaper for the parks of the city of Los Angeles. But I'm pretty confident you actually have heard Cannibal and the Headhunters, because you heard their big hit that for 14 weeks was on top of Billboard's Top 100 in 1965. It's called Land of a Thousand Dances. But I'm sure you know it better as na 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 I admit, it's not the Moonlight Sonata, but frankly, if you don't like Land of a Thousand Dances, there may be something wrong with you. I recommend you seek medical attention immediately. And lest I forget, as we close, the opinions heard in this program do not necessarily represent those 
of KDVS, our sponsors are the regions of the University of California. This is a great tune. Our thanks to Cosmo Garvin, Cal Munger, and our good pal Will Durst. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.